Today in Flex in the City, we talk to Andy Agathangelo, founder Transparency Task Force. Andy talks to us about the importance of ethical leadership in financial services and why we need much more of it. All that happening right now in Flex and the City. Hello, everybody. This is Rachel Treese for Flex and the City. And I am absolutely honored today that I've got Andy Agathangelo who is the founder of the Transparency Task Force. Now, the Transparency Task Force, I've been interested in what they do for a long period of time. So I'm I'm thrilled to have you with us, Andy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about what we do, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. And I know you're a very purpose-driven individual, Andy. So what I'd love to know is if you could tell both myself and our listeners a little bit about you you know i'm interested in your journey because i know you worked in financial services and how you came to be doing the really critically important work you do right now rachel thank you very much for asking i guess the first thing i should really say is i never ever set out to do what i am now doing it's fair to say that it's all kind of happened by accident i guess i have been following a particular direction of travel in my career but i really didn't think that i would end up building the international community that I now have the privilege to lead. So let me talk you through some of the key kind of learnings that I've had in my career that have ended up me now doing what I do. What was your career when you were in uh, the sort yes. of world? So, so way, way back on the 18th of August, 1986, mm-hmm. in the Wild West days of the financial services industry, I became a self-employed, commission-only financial advisor, or more specifically, a trainee financial advisor, which in real terms meant that I was taught how to sell financial services products such as life assurance, savings plans, pension plans, investments. And that was my career for roughly 10 years. I worked for a couple of different companies, um, I quite quickly became a manager, I think, because I've always been quite enthusiastic, Rachel, at what I do. And, you know, companies like enthusiastic managers who can kind of help encourage or inspire others to be equally enthusiastic. And I really loved many, many elements of my job. I really genuinely loved um, talking to you know, husbands and wives about the financial responsibilities and their financial aims and ambitions and I would talk to them like any half decent financial planner or or advisor would I would talk to them about what they were trying to achieve and ideas to help them get where they wanted to go and of course in many cases this resulted in some kind of a financial product being sold Um, I I was quite good at that I I was reasonably good at being a financial planner I was never particularly technically minded but I've always found it very easy to be open and honest with people. And I got the impression that people I was dealing with liked that. They just liked the honesty and the openness. But I should also explain, Rachel, that there was a slightly kind of darker side to this part of my career. On two or arguably three occasions in my 20s, I found myself working for companies that were doing things that they really shouldn't have been doing. and sometimes this was at the expense of the customer and I didn't like that don't get me wrong I'm not a particularly moralistic or righteous or um, 
holier than thou kind of person i'm just an, an ordinary person i really am mm. um but i can tell the difference between right and wrong and i can see when things are going on uh, for the benefit of the company at the expense of the consumer and that obviously didn't sit comfortably with me um in fact so much so that i spoke out about it i spoke to the relevant people within the companies i was working for and on every one of the occasions this happened, uh, uh, there was a pattern. Mm. Instead of the companies choosing to really listen to what I was saying and really understanding what the issue was and, frankly, fixing the problem, they actually tended to think of me being the problem because I was talking out about something. So this is before the days of whistleblowing. You know, we are going back to the, the 1980s, the early 1990s. Um, a lot of people didn't really speak out about financial services malpractice in those days. So I was probably a nuisance to them. I was probably getting in the way of some sales activity or sales objective. So I can understand why they, they took the easier option, which is simply to kind of not listen to what I was saying. So um, I guess what I'm saying is the early part of my career in particular was kind of bitter and sweet, really like the job that I was basically doing. I became a manager. I had some responsibility. I was always quite a motivated and, and enthusiastic person. But, I, but also this kind of feeling that there's stuff going on in the financial industry that really shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And far too many people are simply turning a blind eye to it. And when you then kind of talk to the relevant people in the organization and rather than getting a supportive reaction you get a reaction that says i don't really care enough about this to deal with it that really is rather disappointing and although i didn't realize it at the time uh, that got me thinking at a kind of subconscious level that there's a lot in the financial industry that needs to change and Mm -hmm. um, there's not enough people doing anything about it so what was the big thing that made you shift and, and, and how did the Transparency Task Force come about? Well, there came a point where I was increasingly unenthusiastic about working the way that companies wanted me to work. So like a lot of people, I found myself deciding to eventually set up my own business my own consultancy and the the main main reason for doing that Rachel was I figured that if I was actually doing my own thing then it would be down to me to choose what I was and wasn't comfortable doing Uh, whereas what I found in very general terms was that working for a big company you find yourself sometimes having to compromise around your own ethics, your own values. Mm-hmm. You find yourself kind of having to do things you don't really want to do or that don't really feel right. And having sort of on numerous occasions trying to change the environment I was working within and realizing that I was banging my head against a brick wall, I figured I'm going to get away from that kind of tension and that kind of stress and simply run my own business. So I, I set up my own little consultancy business which still served the financial services industry, mm. but it put me in a position, Rachel, where I was I was in charge. I could um, decide to work for a client or not. I could decide to work the way they wanted me to work or not. And um, that sense of freedom and autonomy really did suit my kind of character. 
I've never been particularly scared of risk. Obviously, this is a bit of an entrepreneurial move for me to make, but it felt right, and I, and I did that. And then another date that I'll give you, uh, 6th of May 2015, mm-hmm. I gave a, gave a speech at a meeting I ran all about the need for reform of the financial industry. And that really, Rachel, is where the, the whole Transparency Task Force story started. Wow, fantastic. So what really motivates, what are your core values and what's the, the real purpose un- underpinning all of this? What gets you out of bed every single morning? I think in a way I've kind of touched on this, I suppose, in the sense that I'm definitely at my best as an individual, as a human being, when I'm really into what I'm doing. Mm. You know, there are times like that, Rachel, when work just isn't work. You know, you wouldn't need to be being paid for doing what you're doing because you're just really into it. It means something to you. It matters. Um, it's what you would choose to do. So I, that's when I'm at my best. I really like it a lot. I love it. I'm passionate when I'm doing something that I am absolutely I'm into and when I am like that Rachel I know myself well enough to know that I give it a hundred percent I really do give it a hundred percent I don't hold back I I give I give it my all I'll work crazy hours I'll be doing all sorts of things making all kinds of sacrifices if 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 it's something that I really believe in Uh, and I think most people are like that I don't think I'm unusual but, but I also think, Rachel, that a lot of people don't realise that we do have a choice, you know. Ultimately, as individuals, we have a choice to accept the work that's being given to us or to reject it. And I honestly think there are so many people, not just in the financial industry, but in all kinds of industries, who are doing a job because... It is a job who don't really believe in what they're doing, who don't really believe the companies they're working for are in any way mission-led or purposeful, who don't really uh, feel they're serving the client's best interests and are having to make really, really awkward and confidence-sapping and energy-sapping compromises. And that's when I'm absolutely useless. I am absolutely useless if I find myself having to do something I don't really believe in. So for me, the idea of, as I'm, I'll come on to explain it in a bit more detail shortly, for me, the idea of doing something that really gave me a chance to focus on what I loved doing, which is to try to help create a financial industry that truly served the, the consumer's interest. So for me, that was all just so natural. So that's why on this uh, speech at the... Uh, event on the 6th of May 2015, I was able to speak to a lot of uh, people in and connected to the financial industry, some of them quite senior folks working for big organizations or trade associations. And I was basically able to um, share my belief that the financial industry is incredibly important to the well-being of society, to economic stability to political stability and as a consequence we really do need to change because 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 this industry is too important for it to carry on being what it is and let me tell you what it is yeah and forgive me rachel i'm just going to be very blunt about it 
all the evidence is telling us, all the data, all the research, all the academic insight is telling us that the financial industry is the least trusted industry of all. Mm-hmm. And this is a shocking state of affairs for many reasons. For, for a start, the, um, the entire financial sector is built on the notion that it can be trusted. In fact, the, um, uh, the, the word credit comes from the Latin word credere, which means believing. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look at this topic or if you study this topic, you realise that if you trace the history of the financial sector all the way back to the beginning, it is all built on the idea that it can be believed in. So logic would suggest that it's therefore got to be a really highly trusted industry because if it has to be trusted to function successfully, then why on earth would the industry itself or the leaders of the industry allow it to be anything other than very trustworthy? But the opposite is true. We're actually at the bottom of the pile of trustworthiness. And of course, if people don't trust the financial sector, they won't engage with it. If they don't won't engage with it, they won't buy the life assurance they need. They won't set aside the savings that they need. They won't put away the money they should for pensions. So to me, this is a really simple dynamic, Rachel. It is in the industry's commercial interest, as well as its sense of altruism, to become highly trusted. And that's where the problem is. We're not. and That needs to change. So, so tell me about some of the lead, because Flex in the City is all about leadership, and we're going to come on to, to leadership yeah. a little bit later, but, yeah. but, but in terms of, let, let's talk about the, the, the great and the good. Which financial services leaders have you really admired in, in your, your career to date? Because well, it's important, isn't it? That's trustworthiness. But it, it, it certainly is. And, and this is a question I'm, I'm really keen to have a chance to, to, to answer fully, because this idea of leadership really is so so important. If I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, Rachel. Bear with me, but I promise I will come back to to where you've got the conversation to go. In March 2019, I ran an event in New York about the work of the Transparency Task Force. And to cut a long story short, uh, a gentleman wasn't able to come to the event that I was really hoping he would. But as a consequence of not being able to make it to the event, he very kindly had coffee and bagels with me opposite Central Station in, in, in New York uh, City. And this gentleman was Georg Kell, Georg Kell. Uh, and Georg was the man who conceived and created the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Wow. And I was really honoured to be having coffee and bagels with him opposite Central Station. Mm. And particularly because I was very keen to understand what it was that Georg Kell had done to take the wonderful, progressive, enlightened ideas he had and how he turned those ideas into what we all now recognize as mm. the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Because I, I kind of realized that I was trying to do something similar. Mm. If we think of the Sustainable Development Goals as a framework for planetary reform, I know that what I've been trying to do is to create a framework for financial services reform. And it was a wonderful conversation. I'll never, ever forget it. It lasts a lot longer than either of us expected, which is a real treat for me. And I came away buzzing with ideas. One of them was to create the finance development goals. So the financial 
services equivalent of the financial services, sorry, the financial services equivalent of mm-hmm. the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these finance development goals very simply are the 12 most important things that need to change the financial services industry to be reformed the way that it needs to be reformed. And one of them, and here I am, Rachel, I promise I'm coming back to your question, but one of them is actually leadership. Leadership is profoundly, profoundly important to the well-being of financial services. And that's kind of obvious. I mean, anybody who's ever worked for a company will know that the culture within the organization you're working for is hugely influenced by the people that run it, the leadership of the organization. An organization has the leader's DNA all over it, you know? Um, So leadership is remarkably important. And in fact, so much so that one of the many, many uh, projects the Transparency Task Force has on the go at the moment is something called the International League of ethical financial services leaders. And what we're doing with the International League of Ethical Financial Services Leaders is we are creating an international network of people who have become remarkably successful within the financial services industry, but have done it without ever putting um, profit before their principles, who've done it without ever putting money before their morals. These are people who have got a tick in both boxes, you know, really successful commercially. They've built great organizations. They've made a lot of money. Brilliant for them. That's wonderful news. But they've done it in a manner that's in keeping with the kind of values that you and I and most other people would really aspire to have. So when I think of your question, I'm immediately... I'm immediately drawn to thinking about the people who are so far uh, the members of the International League of Ethical Financial Services Leaders. And let me tell you a little bit about each of them. And let me tell you about why I think they are quite special um, and why they're such good examples, uh, sort of exemplars to others. The first one, and this is in no particular order, uh, Jason Sue. Jason is the founder and chairman uh, uh, and chief investment officer of Radiant Global Advisors. Mm -hmm. So he runs a very, very successful investment company. He's a remarkably um, intelligent and well-read man. He has studied culture and ethics to the nth degree, and he's managed to build an organization that really does have his values all over it. And it's a great, he's a great example of the kind of ethical leadership uh, that that we're that we're talking about right now, um, and it's lovely because when when it, with all of these leaders, Rachel, um, if you speak to them, you get a particular impression from them. But even more interestingly, when you speak to the co the colleagues, the co-workers, you get that very same impression as well. You know how a company can have a kind of a feel to it or a flavour about it. This is most most definitely true. And what's the one thing that you say that sets Jason and some of those other leaders apart from others? I, I would say the single most thing is an unwillingness to compromise on their values, full mm. stop. An unwillingness to compromise on their values. These are people who would rather walk away from doing the wrong thing than doing it with a sense of, um, a sense of compromise. They, they would just walk away from it. Um, th- these are people who don't compromise on their values 
And because of that, that doesn't make them weaker. That makes them stronger. That makes them even more capable as business leaders. That makes them even more capable as, entre as entrepreneurs because they are transmitting this signal about them and their values. Uh, and that's, that's one of the most frustrating things. Sometimes um, leaders in the financial services sector actually end up making compromises that they shouldn't make in the hope that they'll somehow achieve more by doing so. But in, in the medium to long term, it never works out that way. They end up paying a big price for that for that compromise. Um, another example, uh, Marcos Egrigorin. Uh, Marcos is the, um, until quite recently, he, he was the executive director of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. So Marcos helped to build an international network of banks with ethics at their heart. You know, what a fantastic thing to do. Uh, Tom Bagri, I've known and known of Tom for, you know, mm. decades. Tom runs uh, LifeSearch, which is a company that provides life assurance products and services to the, to the, to the UK marketplace. Um, it is known for a particular kind of client-centric culture. Um, and that's a reflection I, I know of the values and the kind of ethics that Tom Bagri has. Laurie Spengler, Laurie runs um, a very successful impact investment boutique. Right. If you get to know Laurie, you'll understand that she really does take um, issues around ESG and climate change and impact investing very, very seriously. And, and lastly, and just to prove the point that, you know, the idea of being ethical isn't a blockage to becoming a commercial success. Uh, Andrew Wallace, uh, W-A-L-L-A-S, Andrew Wallace, um, remarkably successful person, having built and sold many, many important financial services businesses. Uh, he, he's managed to build his empire over the years without, again, without compromising, without putting uh, profit before principles or money before morals. And when I speak to people like Andrew and Laurie and Tom and Marcos and Jason, I come away from conversations with people like that with a real sense of energy, a real sense of vibrancy and vitality. And it just kind of rubs off you. And you know that if you had the pleasure of working with people like this on a day-to-day -day basis, that, that the, the energy that they give off, this kind of purposefulness, this principledness, this enlightenment almost, that yes, let's make lots of money, let's be commercial successes, but let's do it by serving the client rather than exploiting the client. That, that's the kind of environment that people love to work with. And that's why these people and the organizations that they lead are, are so, so important. So Andy, I'm gonna give you the power of a beautiful magic wand. Um, and I'm going to ask you, if you, if you were truly able um, to make a big change to the financial services industry immediately, yeah. um, what would that be? What would it look like? Well, great question. I think there are a couple of ideas that come to mind here. There are a couple of ideas that come to mind. One of them is about a consumer duty. Okay. So, so let me talk you through why I mentioned that and why I think it's so important. Um, the harsh reality is that there are times when the financial industry doesn't behave itself properly. However, 
it's also remarkably difficult for consumers to be treated fairly and justly when things like that occur, even though we've got a massive, great big financial regulatory framework, and even though we've got a huge infrastructure around, for example, the financial ombudsman service, et cetera, et cetera. The harsh reality is that consumers do not have a private right of action against companies that rip them off, mm-hmm. which makes it very, very difficult for consumers to be treated fairly, and it makes it very difficult for people to be properly compensated. It also means that many, many companies are able to operate in a less than ethical way for years and years and years and get away with it. And right now, the Financial Conduct Authority, which, as you know, is the UK's primary conduct regulator, right now they've got a regulate a, a, a consultation going on about what they're calling a consumer duty. And a consumer duty is a weak and watered-down version of a proper, proper uh, duty of care, which is what actually needs to be in place. So I would say that if the financial services sector were able to embed a proper duty of care regime where individuals had a private right of action against companies that were ripping them off, then I think that would be that would be of seismic significance the way the mm-hmm. industry worked. It basically wouldn't mean a blind thing at all. It wouldn't make a blind difference to companies that were behaving honestly and ethically anyway. Right? They wouldn't need to change a thing. But for companies who were taking decisions based upon how much money can we make for how long before anybody finds out, and if they did find out, how can we defend ourselves without having to pay fines, et cetera, uh, companies like that would have to change their ways quite a bit, quite quickly. So to me, that is like a that would be a, a hugely significant change. Uh, the, other, the other thing I'd like to think about uh, introducing, if I had that wonderful magic wand, and by the way, you must tell me where it is because <laughs> I, I want to get hold of it. Uh, you must tell me where it is. Um, if I did have a, 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 a wonderful magic wand like that, I would encourage all organisations in the financial sector uh, when recruiting leaders mm. to take into account moral quotient. So everybody knows about IQ, intelligence mm-hmm. quotient. Everybody knows about EQ, emotional quotient. Moral quotient is a similar thing. It's a similar idea. It's a spectrum based upon where people are in terms of their ethics and their morals. Um, and I think it's very simple. If you have a leader of an organization with a high moral quotient, it's very likely that that organization will be run in an ethical way. If you have leaders of organizations that aren't at the end of the scale, you have a company that is quite likely sooner or later to cut corners here and there and end up with some kind of malpractice, malfeasance, misconduct or mis-selling going on. So to my mind, wouldn't it be great if um, the assessment of moral quotient for leaders was somehow part of the course for the financial services yeah. industry. And as a psychologist, you know, this, this is fascinating for me. So is, is it something you can measure? Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You definitely can. I first came across it when we were running our event in Boston a couple of years ago. There's a recruitment firm in Boston who mm. um, are really tuned into 
the reality that if you look at um, the behavior of large financial companies, one of the things you really want to know if you're an investor, for example, or if you're a regulator is, what is the risk of this company doing something dodgy? And there's a direct correlation between the probability of the company doing something dodgy and the moral quotient of the leader and the leadership team running it. It's as simple as that. So here's a question. Can you learn moral quotient? Can you become better at it? You definitely can. You definitely can. And part of it, I think, Rachel, is about unlearning stuff. Let let, let me give you an example by that. There are so many people who've been in, in the financial services sector who, for no direct fault of their own, have been caught up in mis-selling. I'll, I'll give you an example. Endowment mortgages, yeah? Mm-hmm. In the 1980s and the 1990s, you know, tens of thousands of endowment mortgages were sold. And the people selling them, the actual consultants, the advisors, the planners, selling endowment mortgages, to my mind, were not selling products that they did not believe were right, but they were not properly trained on what the weaknesses were that the pitch if you were selling a an endowment mortgage versus a repayment mortgage would be very simply this mr client if you have a repayment mortgage you'll pay your mortgage off but if you have your endowment mortgage instead you'll pay your mortgage off and you'll probably have a tax-free lump sum to go with it what i can't tell you is how large that tax-free lump sum would be but all else being equal which of these two would you prefer Obviously, most people went the endowment route. That's how so many endowment mortgages were sold. The reality, of course, is that the consultant, the advisor, the planner didn't explain properly, properly, that actually there's a reasonable chance that if the markets don't perform, you won't have enough money to pay off your mortgage and you're going to have a massive financial headache in years to come. That's the missing bit of information. So to my mind, Rachel, there's a strong correlation between how thoroughly people are trained in the classroom about the products and services they're selling and how they actually behave out there in the field, out there in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And if you have a culture within an organization that turns a blind eye to things like the small print, the risks, the potential downsides, that culture drives what you believe to be the right thing to do. And that's why, without a doubt, you can learn how to do things more ethically by becoming immersed in an ethical environment. And of course, the reverse is true. Put a wonderful human being with perfect ethics into a shark-infested pool, and it was only a matter of time before that person starts to pick up bad thinking, bad habits. I've I've, I've seen it time and time again. And remember, I started in financial services in the Wild West days, 18th Mm -hmm. of August, 1986. And believe you me, there were quite a few sharks swimming around then. There really, really were. Yeah, I think we need to use that for the title, something about the sharks. I think that's a a good one. So when you're not doing what you're doing, you have three boys, don't you, Andy? I have three sons, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I have three sons. And um, yeah, so I do. Do they know what you do? They, <laughs> they certainly know what I do. I talk about it rather a great deal, as you, as you might imagine. Um, <laughs> what they 
if you were to ask me what do they think about what I do, they would probably say dad does that thing that he gets a real kick out of. They know I'm very, very enthusiastic about my work. They know that I work crazy hours much more than I should, so on and so forth. Yeah, so what, you, you told you told me just before we started recording the podcast, you were a bit of a Mario Andretti. Tell us a bit more about that. Oh, that's the Mario Andretti quote. Yes, Mario Andretti, for those that may be listening but don't know, he he's a he was a very, very good racing driver. And one of his quotes that I really relate to, um, and it actually kind of makes complete sense, it's um, it's this. Mario Andretti used to say, if you don't feel like you're about to crash, you're not going fast enough. And, and, I, and I love that quotation because that's often how I feel. I often feel as though the world's about to collapse around me because I'm doing too much. Um, so that's my kind of learning from that particular comment. I, I really do. I really do relate to that. Absolutely. So, so, so as, as a coach, you know, I want to help you with this. So, so <laughs> how can, can our listeners, how can our listeners um, learn more about the transport? You know, you're a global organization. Um, you know, you're doing such um, important work for the world, um, for the, for the industry. Um, you know, how can people get involved? Well, I, I guess that the, the first step is, is to, is to explain what we are and what they would be getting involved with if they wanted to get involved. So what, what actually are we? We are a collaborative campaigning community. We're very informal in our structure. We're very community-led, we're very mission-led. Our kind of formal purpose statement is to promote ongoing reform of the financial services sector so that it serves society better. And I guess listeners just need to make one simple decision. Um, either they do or they don't want to help fix the financial industry. Now, believe you me, there are people out there who think there's nothing wrong with the financial industry. And it's not for me to judge whether that's right or wrong. If that's how they feel, that's absolutely fine. But there's also people out there who um, know there's something not quite right about the financial sector. Um, and they kind of go into one of two groups, those who can be bothered to do something about it and those who can't. So if you think there's stuff wrong in the financial industry and you can't be bothered to do anything about it, that's absolutely fine, not for me to judge either way. But if you happen to think there are things wrong in the financial sector and you are inclined to want to do your little bit, then please, 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 the Transparency Task Force is the ideal home for you. And that's why... We, we have members all around the world. We've got, um, we've got 4,000 members in 21 countries around the world, mm -hmm. and, and roughly 10% of them are what we call our ambassadors. Mm -hmm. The ambassadors of the Transparency Task Force are, are our, our real fans. But 21 countries, that's quite a bit. Bearing in mind, we've never had any money to spend on marketing or promotions or anything like that at all. So um, in, in 20... Um, in 2019, we really pushed hard to try to see whether the issues we were addressing in the UK uh, were relevant in, 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 across Europe, across, across the USA, in the Far East, in Australia. They definitely are. So the Transparency Task Force, I think, is quite unique, Rachel. I think we're the only truly international organization campaigning for reform in the financial sector. And most of our members, not all, but most of our members 
are people who've been in the financial industry for years and years and years, have become frustrated, sometimes disillusioned, sometimes upset, sometimes even angry about what they've seen. They've witnessed the malpractice, the malfeasance, the misconduct, the mis-selling. But rather than standing by, they've decided to stand up and do something about it. And some of our members individually have been doing things to try to fix the financial sector for years and years and years. But within the Transparency Task Force, they can be part of a, a bigger thing that they are, they are an individual member of. Uh, and that's why we're being taken more and more seriously, because if you're, if you're a regulator or if you're a trade association or a trade body or a professional group, if you're a politician, um, you know, 4,000 people around the world is just too many to ignore. And that's why, by the way, Rachel, just to throw this quick point in, that's why we've ended up running two all-party parliamentary groups, one on pension scams and one on personal banking and fairer financial services, because we are being treat, uh, treated you know, seriously by, by policymakers, by regulators, by politicians and so on, not just in the UK, but overseas as well. Wow, fantastic. So really want to acknowledge the work that you, you do, Andy. And, and outside of, again, the work, work you do, you know, do you have any hobbies? Is there anything you love to do? Uh, to be honest with you, when I'm not working, I just like spending time with my family. I, I don't spend enough time with my family. I wish I could and did spend more time. I must talk to you one, one day about your coaching skills because my work, my work life balance is absolutely shot away. You know, it really is useless. Um, I need to fix that. But I just love spending time with my family. We we you know we we do all the normal things that a normal family would do, and it helps me. It helps me reconnect with my purpose in a way. And um, <clears throat> sometimes if you're a busy person at work, you end up having to make decisions that sometimes take you away from your family. You know, you, you don't quite spend enough time with your family as you'd like. And that, that kind of hurts sometimes. It really, really does. But the, the, one, the one thing I'd like to think kind of makes up for that is that, if my children pick up from me the basic idea that if you believe in something, do it, then that, to my mind, is priceless. You know, if, 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 if my kids grew up with a sense of purposefulness and a sense of confidence that they can do things that they believe in and that they should do things they believe in only, then that, to my mind, is hopefully a bit of a counterweight uh, to... Um, the many sacrifices they see their dad making on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Andy, that was a beautiful ending to what's been a fantastic um, podcast. Thank you so very, very much for joining us here on Flex in the City. And I'd like to encourage all of our listeners out there to, to really reflect on what you're hearing from Andy. And uh, I know Andy and his team would be very, very welcome to, to hear from you um, if you want to make a difference to this really important industry. So thank you again, Andy, for joining me on Flex in the City this afternoon. Thank you very, very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And Andy, for our listeners who want to find where to go, what is the, what is the website address for the Transparency Task Force? transparencytaskforce.org fantastic so that's transparencytaskforce.org thank you so much andy for joining us on flex in the city this afternoon you just listened to flex in the city catch us on our next episode